Hello, everyone, and welcome back. We're all refreshed, and it's good to be back in the saddle, isn't it, Solars? It is. It's been a busy couple of weeks, though. I feel yeah. like we didn't even really take a break. No. You know, just a just a, a step back maybe a little bit, but, yeah, definitely not a break. <laughs> but then you sit down, and you're like, what did we actually get accomplished? I know. Well, you got a lot done, I think, on the website, didn't you? Yeah, I got several cases added to that, and I've got a couple more that are almost done. We got some research done for upcoming episodes and made mm-hmm. some contact with some agencies and have some things lined up. So yeah. that's always a plus. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, there's a lot of things going on in the background that we can't necessarily share yet. So, but, you know, we've got things going on. So, yeah, I think it was productive for the most part. Oh, and yeah. We got a little bit of rest too on the side. So, you know. Oh, yeah. I got, got to catch up on some sleep. That was nice. Yeah. Sleep? What sleep? Well, now we know. <laughs> I know. I know. I know. I'm well, happy to be back, though. Yeah. Well, also, we have a birthday girl in the house. What? <laughs> yeah. Happy birthday. Thank you, thank yeah. you. People always ask me, how old are you? And I have to think about it because, you know, nothing fun necessarily happens after you're 21. I mean, when you turn 25, your car insurance goes down. Yeah. And so <laughs> then you just, I'm like, um, you're going to have to give me a minute because I'm not quick on my math and mm. I've got to figure it up in my head. Yeah. You know, after you hit 30, you become that 30 something. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not all 40 yet, <laughs> but I'm getting closer. So I'm in the in between. Well, I feel like you're still young, and so I'm not going to reveal my age. <laughs> I don't feel that way. I feel really tired all the time. And... <laughs> we just take what we can get, right? <laughs> right. Oh, here's an interesting unrelated story. So it's been really bad weather down here uh-huh. like. We go, summer is always like one of the rainiest seasons. And we have had just some really bad, we get pop up thunderstorms, but we've had some like really bad thunderstorms coming through the area. And earlier last, I'm trying, I've lost track of the days. So it was earlier this week. Mm -hmm. um, We had a lot of thunder and lightning. And all of a sudden, this really loud thunder came by, and I could see this bright white light out our window. Um, my son even heard it back. It, like, actually woke him up. He can sleep through literally anything. I think <laughs> a train could barge through his room, and he would never know. Not a teenage boy at all. <laughs> no. I thought it lightning hit our house. Because our power went out and came back on. Everything seemed to be working. Not a big deal. My husband gets home later and he tells me that lightning has hit a tree in our backyard. I thought it hit our chain link fence because that's what it sounded like was the fence actually rattling. Oh, yeah. It, we have a big zip line that we built for our daughter. Apparently, it hit that tree and it 
connected into the metal zip line and traveled down the zip line. Oh, wow. Yeah. So and then where was I the think, other end of the zip line connected? Into another tree. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, because that's not like connected to your house in any way. Is no, it? <laughs> no. It just runs like, but it runs where it ends is right where I saw the light. That bright white light would be right in that corner of that window is where it ends. and that's crazy. It's crazy. And then we had lightning pop right out a couple of days later, close to the same area. It's just been some weird nature stuff going on around here. You're going to have to excuse me if I stop every once in a while because for some reason my stomach is being super loud. I might have to make it a <laughs> like a co-host. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I haven't. For our first episode back, we wanted to catch up on, well, frankly, we mentioned this frequently, Yeah, is what we dislike calling anniversaries. Um, But we feel it's important to remember all of our cold case victims, and this is kind of an easy way to do that um, for those who are, you know, having current anniversaries, so to say. So we're wanting to just give today's episode to, you know, talk about the June and July cases that we follow. And unfortunately, again, it isn't a short list. There are several that we've talked about already either in our Unforgotten episodes or on the Alabama Cold Case Advocacy page. And there's a couple that will be coming up in some of our episodes um, in the near future. Right. But there's some that we haven't covered or mentioned at all yet. Yeah. When you hear their names and a summary of their case, please be sure to dig deep. If you think you may have a memory or some sort of information, however small, that will help these cases. So the first case that we're talking about is actually kind of the case that was the catalyst to Alabama cold case advocacy getting started. This case is incredibly close to me. Um, It was the very first case that I researched for visualization on the Uncovered website, and it is the case of Danielle Vianne. And the reason that it is so close to my heart is because Daniela actually vanished on my birthday. And it's just something that has stuck with me. And I think part of that is because Daniela was a single mom and she had a very young daughter. I think at the time her daughter was four years old. And all I could think about at the time that the news came out that she was missing was that I was at home with my family. Actually, my husband had picked up our youngest, my bonus daughter, um, and they surprised me with a cookie cake for my birthday. And All I could think about after seeing all the news reports come out was, oh, my God, what if her daughter never gets to have a cookie cake with her mom again? And 
it just broke my heart. And I think that's probably why I have just never really been able to let it go. This is one of those stories that when you shared it with me, it's kind of what hooked me in, I think. Um, you know, you and I have known each other for a little while you know, through Uncovered, but um, when you told me about the story, I just kind of I, You it know, it just, I watched as the investigation kind of unfolded and it was heartbreaking because Daniela was 25 years old. She had been working really hard to kind of get her life together. She and her on-again, off-again boyfriend, Tyler, who was also the father of her child, um, had kind of had a rocky relationship. And at some point, they had decided that it was in the best interest of their daughter to sign custody over to Tyler's mother, Julie. And it takes a strong person to recognize that it is in the better interest of their child to let somebody else step in for a little while. I agree. And I don't think that that necessarily, I mean, sure, there are people out there that do it for selfish reasons, but I also think that there are very unselfish reasons that people do that. I think when you realize that maybe you're not the most capable person for providing that stable life for a child and you want to be able to do that, that says a lot about you as a person deep down. You know, they went about it in a way that that showed it was a responsible decision. It wasn't just like, you know, their parents thought they were being bad parents and were trying to take the kids away or, you know, that sort of thing. Exactly. And Tyler had his issues and he was dealing with those and Daniela was working through getting her life together. She wanted to be able to provide a better life for Cora. She had... um a goal sheet that she had written out that they ended up putting on the news later with things that she wanted to accomplish. And they were things like taking Cora to school, um, you know, paying off debts here and there, buying a car, all of these things, having Cora spend the night, all kind of things that had to do with her daughter that would give her that stable life with them. And, Mm -hmm. She had finally accomplished on July 17th of 2018, she'd finally accomplished one of those goals. She actually went to Pearl Motors in Mobile and bought a new-to-her car. Um, it was a 2014 Chevy Cruze. And the thing about it was that because it was kind of one of those buy-here-pay-here places, they actually outfitted the car with a dealer-installed GPS. And that... I think is just something really important and kind of critical to it because you know it's working when she gets the car. Right. And and she just got it that day, so you know. She yeah. gets it, yes. She gets it that morning. They wouldn't have let her leave if it wasn't working. You know the car is in working order. Everything's good. Um, she leaves. She goes to the mall for a little bit. She goes back to her apartment. And then she goes to Heroes Sports Bar and Grill out um, in Westmobile. It's across from the University of South Alabama. And meets up with a former co-worker slash friend named Randy Capps. 
who was working as a bartender at Hero Sports Bar. And while she's there, two more people come in, Denson and Mallory. And my understanding is that maybe Daniela knew Mallory through some mutual friends, but they weren't necessarily friends. And that she had maybe come across Denson at some point because she had worked in the restaurant industry for a while. Um, and that maybe they had crossed paths, but they didn't really know each other. Yeah. Through talking with friends and family members, I think they became Facebook friends that evening, but they weren't prior to that, and they weren't talking or hanging out or anything before then. But she was by herself, so she they just they knew Randy. They played softball together, so she just kind of ends up hanging out with them, and they all were watching the MLB All-Star game. So they all kind of meet up, hang out, decide, okay, well, he's going to get off work later. So let's go wait for him to get off work down at this other bar that's just a little ways down the road, I think less than five minutes, that was called the Dublin Pub and Eatery. So what's interesting about it is that they supposedly leave Heroes at nine o'clock that's reportedly been validated by timestamps on text messages and phone calls and video surveillance. And then her GPS shows that her car doesn't actually leave the Heroes parking lot until 10.05. So there's like an hour difference there. But then they get within just a few minutes, like three minutes later, her car gets to Dublin's. And maybe 45 minutes later, Mallory, Denson, and Daniela leave Dublin's and they're all in their individual vehicles. And the plan was once Randy got off work, they were going to go to this third restaurant called Ollie's. I think it's Ollie's Mediterranean Grill. So he gets off work at, you know, 1030, 1045, whatever. They're all supposed to meet up with him. They leave at 1045, except Daniela never makes it to Ollie's. They leave. Denson turns to go one way. And apparently, Daniela follows him. He says, I don't know. I didn't know she was following me. And then suddenly, somebody's flashing their lights on behind me on the interstate, which is the opposite way that they should be going. Right. And they pull off the interstate on Government Street and into this gas station parking lot, this shell station parking lot that's closed. Which is odd to me because there are other places in that area that are open. And at this point, it's like 11 o'clock. So NBC 15 gets surveillance footage. They share it. They publish it. But then it's immediately taken down just about. But they did leave a summary of what you can see on the footage. And apparently it's very grainy. Um, and But you can see like headlights pulling in and stuff. So they, But they had timestamps in their summary. And so you can apparently see two vehicles pulling in and then one leaves and then another vehicle, possibly the same one, pulls in and they sit there for a while. But it's like right after 11 o'clock. What 11 o'clock, though, as these cars are pulling in, like they've pulled in, her GPS just stops responding. Like, that's it. That's the last ping is at that closed gas station. This is crazy. And it's so weird to me because she's had just got that car. It's been working all day. And then conveniently, 
the last time she's seen on surveillance, at least that the public knows, it stops. And it's so strange. And then she nor her car ever seen again. And what he's, what Denson says is, well, she said she lost her phone. She couldn't find it. So we looked for it. And then I said, well, let's go back to Dublin um, to check there. And then I get to Dublin. I get her phone, but she never shows up. It's just, this whole thing just is so... It is. We'll put a link to the uncovered visualization that has a lot more details in it. And we'll be covering her case more in depth in an upcoming episode. But odd things that happen between that last kind of communication with her the last time she's seen and then almost a year later when she's found. There's a lot of kind of odd things that happen in that time period. Mm-hmm. I it, it just broke my heart the whole time. I kept watching for news to come out and the news followed it really closely when it first happened, but then, you know, like it always does, other things came out to take the place and new information kind of trickled off until there was no information coming out anymore. Yeah, yeah. And then all of a sudden in May of 2019, news comes out that an off-duty police officer was marking areas for the dive training in Saraland, which was 17 miles away from where she was last seen, and noticed something strange on his, like, sonar. Marked it and had the divers come out. And that's, they found her car 17 miles away, submerged in Bayou Sarah Creek. And she was still inside. That's a long ways away. It is. And her friends and family say, you know, she wasn't from here, not originally. Everybody she knew was out in the mobile area. She didn't know anybody in the Saraland area in general. Obviously, she didn't have her phone. Her GPS wasn't working. I don't know if her car had navigation in it, but I'm assuming it probably didn't. My guess is it didn't, yeah. So to get to to get to Saraland, like if she was meeting somebody, I've mapped it out. She would have had to driven down the interstate to get to that launch the it's a boat launch where they found her. She would have had to go through used, you know, one of two exits, went through multiple larger intersections with several red lights, and then traveled down a very dark and curvy neighborhood. It's not very well lit. It's a very small boat launch. It's very bizarre. And then all they said was it's consistent with an accident. Yeah. And maybe it is, you know, weird, strange things happen all the time. Makes me think of Keely um, Rodney. It's very similar in some ways. It's just strange. And there were phone calls left on Daniela's Facebook Messenger inadvertently. And her family believes that you can hear Daniela on those audio messages. I didn't even know that you could leave like voicemails on Facebook Messenger. Um, but apparently you can. Yeah, this is the first time I'd ever heard that too. Yeah, this is mm-hmm. how I found out about it, actually, that you could do that. Mm-hmm. 
um, and they fully believe that she can be heard on these. And if that is her, then it doesn't sound like she was in any state of mind to be able to drive. No. So it's certainly not the route she would have had to take. Right. So it's just strange. And her yeah. her case isn't closed. That's something that um, definitely, you know, I think people need to, you know, be aware of is that Mobile Police Department has not closed her case. They just said that it is consistent with an accident um, and any credible information that anybody has, they'll follow up on. It, I think it's just not an active investigation anymore. Basically, they're waiting for somebody to send them a tip. Right. The emergency brake was engaged. The doors were locked. The back um, driver's side window, it said was down about two inches. And I don't know if maybe that changed, but if you go back and look at the photos of the car that are out there on the internet from when they actually pulled it out of the water, it's more like halfway. Yeah. But what's strange to me is that if she was in a panic when she was trying to get out, why was only one window manipulated? Why weren't some of them cracked? Yeah. It's odd. Um, and then to make matters worse, because it wasn't paid off, the insurance company actually, you know, got the car back once they were done doing the, right. I guess, you know, forensic analysis of it. And it ended up being auctioned off and it was sold to somebody in the I think Ukraine, maybe. Yeah, I think it was. I thought that was odd, actually. It w was a little bit odd. And really kind of strange was that it looked like the back passenger seat belt had been taken out. Not really sure at what point that happened or why that would have happened, because you know they didn't sell it with a seat belt missing. Right, yeah. Almost as if maybe it was removed, you know, like by forensics or something. Yeah. Or something. So, you know, at this point... Daniela's autopsy came back as undetermined because it had been almost a year from the time that she vanished to when she was located. Mm -hmm. Her case is unresolved, still open, inactive, but there are questions that I think need to be answered. And all I can think about is that one day her daughter is going to start asking some very hard questions that people don't have the answers to. And somebody has those answers, and they need to think about that. So if you have any information regarding Daniela's case, please contact Mobile Police Department at 251-208-1862 or 251-208-7000. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Well, in addition to Daniela's case, we now remember the following missing and murdered or suspicious deaths taking place in the months of June and July. In June, we remember Brianna Reyes. You may remember Brianna's story from episode three of Unforgotten. If you haven't listened to it yet, be sure to go back and check it out. The 30-year-old Brianna left her home in Foley, Alabama on June 19th, 2020 
and her family has not seen or heard from her since. Her direction of travel was unknown. Brianna was known to frequent the Bon Secure and Magnolia Springs areas. There are a few details officially known, but we found a few more details about her life from her social media and background research. There were risk factors, for instance, a history of substance abuse, losing custody of her children, and that she was married at the time of her disappearance. There was also the possibility of domestic violence with her husband and possibly some other relationships at some point. If you have any information, you can contact the Foley Police Department at 251-937-0202 or submit anonymous tips at tips.fbi.gov. Jeremy Lee Thompson, Walker County Sheriff's Office, states that on June 7, 2019, Jeremy's former girlfriend slash common-law wife contacted the sheriff's office frantically reporting that someone had hit Jeremy over the head, robbed him, killed him, and then dumped his body. Though the publicly known details are vague and complicated, there has been information shared with the sheriff's office that there may have been hints of financial fraud against Jeremy occurring just prior to his disappearance. In July of 2020, Tara Freeman was arrested for providing false information about his case and was named a person of interest. If you have any tips about the disappearance of Jeremy Thompson, please contact the Walker County Sheriff's Office at 205-302-6464. Or you can call the Secrets True Crime Podcast Confidential Tip Line at 205-282-0740. Dustin Alexander. Six years ago, on June 16, 2017, Dustin was discovered around 3.45 a.m. unconscious at the end of the driveway of his grandmother's home on Highway 195 in Jasper with a serious injury to the back of his head and experiencing seizures. Dustin was taken to Grandview Medical Center in Birmingham, where he passed away a few days later. According to the autopsy report, Dustin had sustained blunt force trauma to the head, a small laceration to his right shoulder blade, and had other bruises. Walker County Sheriff Jim Underwood said his death was being investigated as a homicide. If you have any information about what happened to Dustin Alexander, please contact Walker County Sheriff's Office at 205-302-6464. Or you can call Crime Stoppers Anonymous Tip Line at 205-254-7777. Curtis Creer. On June 12, 2017, around 1 o'clock a.m., Curtis's Alberta home was broken into. He and his girlfriend, Nancy, were both shot in the process of what is believed to be a robbery. Though Nancy survived, at only 50 years old, Curtis Creer died from his wounds, an apparent robbery gone wrong. In December of 2018, at the request of Wilcox County Sheriff's Office, there was a $5,000 governor's reward established for anyone leading to the arrest and conviction of Curtis's murderer. If you have any information on this now six-year-old case of Curtis Creer, please call the Wilcox County Sheriff's Office at 334-682-9115 or their secret witness hotline at 334-682-4251. Brittany Robinson Eleven years ago, 14-year-old Brittany was dropped off for a weekend visit with her father, Demetric Hooper. Two days later, on June 20, 2012, hours had passed from the time he texted Brittany's mother, Tiana, 
After several texts to Tiana and ignored calls from her, he finally told her that they were at a wedding party and that she'd be home soon. When this didn't happen, Tiana was very concerned, and after calls to multiple people, she contacted the Mobile County Sheriff's Office, then went to Dimitrik's home with his landlord. No one was home, and it appears Brittany hadn't even been there. In the process of searching for Brittany, it was discovered that Dimitrik had been implicated in a case of abduction of another of his children, and eventually Dimitrik was arrested and convicted of custodial interference. He was released after serving four of his 10-year sentence. Today, they are still actively looking for Brittany, and they have Walmart surveillance from Rangeline Road showing Brittany and her father and an unknown woman. But to date, this woman has not been identified. We'll include a link to her picture in the episode details. Dimitrik has maintained his innocence in her disappearance, and Brittany is still missing. Please contact the Mobile Police Department at 251-205-1700 or Crime Stoppers at 251-208-7000 if you have any information at all regarding Brittany Robinson's disappearance. As a side note, he now lives in Texas, I believe, um, based on his Facebook post. I found his Facebook page. Oh. So if anybody listens in Texas that, you know, may have came across him and spoke to him and maybe learned information that could be relevant, call that in too, please. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we I guess we remind people that, you know, I know a lot of listeners are all over the place. They're not necessarily just in Alabama. So, you know, but, you know, you or your friends or anybody you share with, anybody could have some kind of remote contact with people in Alabama or people from Alabama. So Exactly. Corey Nolan Smith. It has been 14 years since Corey Smith was last seen after stopping by his uncle's home in Empire on June 18, 2009. He stated he was going to a man's house that owed him money and wasn't seen again after that. Unfortunately, due to most of his family being in Tennessee, a missing person report wasn't filed until May of 2010. There have been many searches completed on the land and bodies of water around that area, including one around a home of Stacks Bottom Road, where evidence was said to be collected after a cadaver dog hit in the area. It hasn't been shared what that evidence was, and no arrests have been made, and Corey still has not been located. In May of 2012, a governor award of $5,000 was offered for information leading to Corey's location. Corey had a young son and another on the way when he disappeared. And his family wants answers. If you have any information regarding Corey's disappearance, please contact Walker County Sheriff's Office at 205-302-6464 or Crime Stoppers at 205-254-7777. Kelly Henderson Howard. About noon on June 2nd, 2009, 41-year-old Kelly was on her lunch break at work talking to her mother on the phone. Kelly was a dental hygienist at Family Dentistry in Riverside. While they were on the phone, someone came to the office door and Kelly asked her mom to hold while she checked on this, but she never returned to the phone. Reports say that she was seen leaving work about 1 p.m. that day, though we're not sure who saw her or how she left. Her car was still located in the dentist office parking lot on Highway 78. Her personal belongings were gone, 
but the keys were in a plastic bag lying in the weeds next to the office. No bank cards or cell phone have been used since she went missing. In 2011, her employer, Dr. Rick Mitchell, was indicted with fraud, money laundering, and identity theft. Though no connections have been proven, her family and others suspect it could be connected. In early August of 2019, no longer a dentist but a pastor, he and his wife were also indicted for insurance fraud and arson at his own church in June of 2019 and criminal conspiracy. He passed away of a heart attack before conviction at the end of the month. Extensive searches have been made to no avail, and in 2014, Kelly's family had her declared deceased. In August of 2019, her sister posted in Kelly's Facebook page that she was working with someone on her case. Fourteen long years later, her family hasn't stopped looking for answers and misses her terribly. If you or anyone you know has information that might be helpful to finding Kelly, please contact the St. Clair County Sheriff's Office immediately at 205-884-3333 or 205-884-2677. Felicia Cochran. It has now been 31 years since anyone has seen 26-year-old Felicia Cochran, who disappeared after leaving her home in Pell City to go to Birmingham to see a man she had recently begun dating. Due to her estranged husband stalking her and occasionally becoming violent, She arranged to have her cousin travel with her and headed out around 6 p.m. that evening to begin her travel plans. Felicia had promised her mother before leaving that they would stay overnight due to incoming bad weather. It wasn't until the following day when Felicia's mother received a call that she didn't show up for work that she became worried and called the cousin she was traveling with, only to find out that Felicia never showed up. After making several phone calls, Felicia's mother contacted Pell City Police Department to report her missing and they told her she needed to wait 12 hours. So she called back right away after 12 hours passed. Based on witnesses, Felicia's estranged husband had been waiting outside her mother's home when Felicia left on the 11th, but the police didn't arrive before Felicia and her husband were gone. About 4 a.m. on the morning of the 12th, police responded to a report of a car on fire on Turner Mill Road in Talladega County, and it was determined to be Felicia's car. Because of the 12-hour waiting period, no missing person report had been filed yet, and no link to the car fire was made, and no evidence was found at the scene. No official person of interest has ever been named publicly, and Felicia is still listed as an endangered missing person. If you know anything about Felicia's case, please call the Pell City Police Department at 205-884-3334 or Crime Stoppers at 205 254 7777. Brenda Tucker. 35 years ago, the summer of 1988, Brenda vanished into thin air. It seems, due to the age of the case, some details are missing, but she was last seen with a man who was either her boyfriend or her husband on June 1st, 1988. However, the same man, Carl A. Williams, allegedly told people that he had killed Brenda during an argument. This occurred shortly before he actually committed suicide. Some of the lesser-known facts are that Brenda spent some time in Fayetteville, North Carolina, before meeting Williams. Family members say it's possible she may have had a child during that time. According to a web sleuth post, Brenda has been favored to be the Heflin Jane Doe. However, according to sources, Brenda has been ruled out. If we have any more information, we'll follow up in the future. 
If you know anything at all about Brenda Tucker's disappearance or may have seen any sort of argument or suspicious events with a man, presumably Carl Williams, please contact Heflin PD at 256-263-2291. Charles Prishnan, or Dusty, and Mike Donnelly, our oldest June cold case, is a 37-year-old homicide. These two men, Dusty, age 31, and Mike, age 30, were murdered in Mike's Birmingham apartment on June 19, 1986. Again, the details are limited, at least in part, due to the age of the case. We found only one article in the Birmingham Post-Herald. According to the article, Mike's apartment manager heard five shots around 9 p.m. on the 19th, but thought it was kids shooting off fireworks. The following day, she noticed Mike's car was still there when he normally would be at work and heard his dog whining in the apartment. She contacted the police while another tenant knocked on the unlocked screen door, and then she went in. There she found both Mike and his friend Dusty shot from behind. Robbery was ruled out as nothing from the men or the apartment was taken, and it did not look like there was any kind of struggle. Another tenant also told the police she heard what sounded like five shots the night before and went to the window to see a white male, about 5'10 to 6 feet tall, leaving from the direction of Mike's and getting into a large car near a dumpster and then leave. If you know anything about Dusty and Mike's murder, please contact Crime Stoppers at 205-254-7777 or your local police department. In addition to Daniela's case July 17th, we remember the following cases for July. Charles Wayne Wilkinson III, also known as CJ. On the evening of Tuesday, July 28th, 2020, CJ approached his mother April, feeling distressed, and opened up to her about a recently formed drug habit that had developed within what seemed to be a matter of weeks. CJ expressed his strong desire to put an end to this behavior. April gave him support and love. Anne took his keys and told him to sleep it off in hopes that he would sleep through and be sober the next day. The following day, July 29th, April left for work around 5.45 a.m., but before leaving, she stopped to check in on CJ and emphasized that he should sleep so that he could be clear-minded when he woke up. At 11.38 a.m., CJ sent a text to April asking where his keys were, and she reminded him that she had them. There were a couple of other short abrupt text that morning, and then at 2.37 p.m., he had a short text exchange with a friend who he told he was trying to sober up. It seems his phone had gone dead or was turned off sometime shortly after that text message. When April returned home from work around 3 p.m., CJ was gone. After being unable to find him on their own, April made a missing person report on August 3rd. Just a couple of days after he went missing, his boots and phone were located just off of County Road 30 and Calico Road. I think they were just kind of sitting on the side of the road, like he just sat down and took them off and left them there. In the weeks that followed, there were multiple searches to no avail. But on the 10th week, not far from CJ's home off of Center Church Road, a landowner discovered his remains in a wooded area. From what they were able to glean from the sparse investigation, CJ had left home on foot between 2 and 2.30 p.m., fully clothed in boots, pants, and a shirt on a nearly 90-degree day and walked about four miles before backtracking into a nearby wooded area. Law enforcement officials, particularly at the start of the investigation, have said they think it was a terrible accident. But CJ's family thinks otherwise. 
and investigators have received many tips regarding alternate theories of foul play. If you know anything about CJ's activities before July 29, 2020, or any information about the events following this day leading up to his discovery, please contact the Marion County Sheriff's Office at 205-921-4733. Susan Osborne and Evan Chartrand On July 29, 2017, 42-year-old Susan Osborne and her 14-year-old son, Evan Chartrand, from Wetumpka, Alabama, were reported missing from her mother, who lived out of state and had been unable to contact them for an extended period of time. When officers went to their home for a welfare check, they interviewed Susan's husband, Jerry Osborne. He stated that Susan and Evan had left on their own with an unknown man, taking most of their belongings with them. He alleged that she also vandalized their home before leaving, though this had never been previously reported. Investigators discovered that recent remodeling had been done to the home and burn piles were found on the property. The dogs that belonged to Evan and his little sister had been taken to an animal shelter. Jerry was named as a person of interest, but today no arrest has been made and Susan and Evan remain missing. Secrets True Crime podcast actually covered Susan and Evan's case in the first season, so they have a very in-depth investigation that they did that you can kind of follow along with and get a whole lot more information on Susan and Evan's disappearance. So I encourage anybody who's listening to go check that out. This month makes six years since Susan and Evan disappeared. If you have any information, please contact Elmore County Sheriff's Office at 334-567-5546. Or you can call the Secrets True Crime Podcast Confidential Tip Line at 205-282-0740. Leela Faulkner 29-year-old Leela has been missing for seven years. She and her daughter had recently moved back in with her parents, Susan and Rick, after a breakup with her boyfriend, Blaine, and I'm probably going to mispronounce this and I apologize, Grawl here. Susan and Rick were upstairs getting Leela's daughter ready for a 4th of July event when they heard Leela leave through the front door. They didn't think much of it as she wasn't planning to attend the event with them. It wasn't unusual for Leela to be gone over a night or two, but soon they began to worry when she didn't return. On July 7th, they contacted Pike County Sheriff's Office to file a missing person report. Unfortunately, with her history of leaving for extended periods, they wouldn't take the report until friends and family still couldn't locate her two weeks later. It seems that Leela and Blaine had had a terrible argument by text with accusations of him leaving her for another woman and allegations regarding money and drugs, which Leela was struggling with at the time. She was also pregnant by another man, according to Susan. In addition to the text that day, her parents also discovered texts sent to someone just a few days prior to her disappearance about being afraid of Blaine. Investigators said her disappearance was abnormal as there had been no pings from Leela's cell phone at all, nor had her bank accounts been accessed, and no indication of anyone picking her up. There have been many searches, but Leela is still missing to this day and no person or persons of interest have ever been named publicly. There is a $10,000 reward for information locating Leela or her remains. If you have any information about Leela's disappearance, please contact Pike County Sheriff's Office at 334-566-4347. Joseph Johnson 
In Episode 9, we shared 26-year-old Joseph Johnson's now 8-year-old case of hit-and-run from July 26 of 2015. According to reports, Joseph was found by a motorist near the intersection of Highway 14 and Dallas County Road 209. He was on the side of the road roughly a half a mile from his friend's home. Joseph had been living in Wadsworth at his parents' home. Around 8.30 or 9 p.m. that night, he left his house driving his father's truck to go out with friends. They switched cars, and then they went to Roger's Lounge in Selma, riding in his friend's car now, and were out late drinking and hanging out for several hours. When they headed back to his friend's, his friend states that Joseph fell asleep, and while he was sleeping, his friend and his friend's girlfriend argued, and she got out of the car at a store named Gabe's not far from his friend's house. Per his friend, Joseph woke up realizing that she was walking home alone and got out to find her. State troopers believe he was under the influence of alcohol and possibly fell asleep on the highway, and likely a motorist just didn't see him leaving without stopping. But in researching and talking to witnesses near the scene that night, the details aren't exactly accurate, and there is more information being researched about the case suggesting that this may have not been a simple hit and run. But regardless of the how or the why, the motorist responsible for that fateful night has still not been arrested. His family is still waiting for answers. If you have knowledge of the hit and run, events leading up to or after it occurred, please contact the Alabama Law Enforcement Agency at 334-874-8234. Jennifer Faye Powers 29-year-old Jennifer Powers was last seen the evening of July 12, 2008, in Harvest. Her husband told Madison County Sheriff's Office that he woke up in the middle of the night to find Jennifer gone and no note or indication of where she went, except that she'd left behind her purse, wallet, driver's license, cigarettes, and medication. So basically, all of her personal necessary belongings. Though her family acknowledges that she struggles with substance abuse, they maintain that she would never have left the couple's three children, stating that she was a good mother. In the last 15 years, Madison County Sheriff's Office has stated that they believe Jennifer was a victim of a homicide, and Jennifer has since been legally declared deceased. In 2017, investigators conducted a new search around the house that she lived in at the time. Cadaver dogs hit on two locations, and though Jennifer wasn't located, they did gather evidence that has not been shared with the public to date. They also have a person of interest who has now become, is stated in the media, uncooperative. There is a $10,000 reward being offered. Investigators and family are requesting help from anyone with information that will lead to Jennifer's remains, as well as assist in the arrest and conviction for the suspect or suspects responsible. Please call the Madison County Sheriff's Office at 256-533-8820 with any tips. Lisa Ann Green. It has been 15 years since Lisa was last seen. She left her apartment on the 4800 block of Cypress Creek Avenue in Tuscaloosa about 5 p.m. At that time, she drove a silver 2000 Dodge pickup truck licensed 63V444G. Lisa met a friend that day at View Carre on Skyland Boulevard to discuss a fundraiser she was planning. She was there only about 10 minutes, and at tape 20, she called her father to say she was on her way to pick up her son, but she never arrived. After finding her pickup in the parking lot of a Food World store in the 4400 block of University Boulevard East, 
Detectives found the store surveillance camera showing Lisa entering the store at 9.30 p.m. wearing a white short-sleeved top and dark blue jeans the night she disappeared. She made a purchase and left the store, got into a white car, but they were unable to make out a license plate number. Foul play is suspected in this case, and Lisa is still missing to this day. If you remember anything from that day or have any information about Lisa Green's whereabouts, please contact Tuscaloosa PD at 205-349-2121. Tanya Turner McMillan. Though she's been missing for 17 years now, little is known about Tanya's case. Her daughter stated that she got up in the morning and dressed as normal. She left on foot saying she'd be back, and that was the last time anyone has been known to see Tanya. Tanya is an African-American woman with black hair and brown eyes. She was 42 at the time she disappeared and would be 59 years old today. She is approximately 5'5 and was around 102 pounds at the time. If you know anything about Tanya's case, please contact the Mobile Police Department at 251-208-1741. Eric Blevins Eric was also featured in Episode 9 with Joseph Johnston's case. 23-year-old Eric Blevins hasn't been seen or heard from since July 23, 2005. Investigators believe he left the Traveler's End on West Highland Avenue in Selma on foot, and a witness claims to have seen him walking in the Merrimack area. Eric's father, a deputy with the Dallas County Sheriff's Office, last spoke with Eric on the phone on July 22nd. According to reports, Eric left his cousin Dorothy Blevins' house on Lamar Street on July 23rd to go visit another cousin, John Blevins, at the Traveler's Inn. Later, he left John's place on foot to visit friends at the Merrimack Apartments. However, it seems he never made it to his friends. Unfortunately, neither of the relatives that Eric spent time with that day could recall when exactly he left their residences, making it difficult for investigators to trace Eric's movements. Despite a reward in searches including a cadaver dog near Tipton Middle School in 2005, no new information has been found. In 2015, at the request of Eric's father, Dallas County Probate Court issued an order declaring Eric legally deceased. However, the investigation into Eric's disappearance continues today. There is a governor's reward for $500 for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the person or persons responsible for Eric's disappearance. If you or anyone you know has any information regarding Eric's disappearance, please contact the Selma Police Department at 334-375-1708. Carrie Palmer Adams 25-year-old Carrie Palmer Adams was last seen leaving a party at a residence off US 280 around 2 a.m. on July 5, 1998. She told friends at the party she was walking to a residence where her husband was staying near Sylacauga, near the Hanover community in Coosa County. This was the last time Carrie was seen. Carrie and her husband Chip were living in Chipley, Florida, and were visiting relatives over the 4th of July holiday. According to an interview with his sister, Chip searched up and down the roads for Carrie before returning to Chipley on July 6. Two days later, around 2 p.m., hunters discovered Carrie's partially clothed body about 50 feet down and in the middle of a logging road off Flagpole Mountain Road near Childersburg. Reports say this is about three to three and a half miles from US 280 where the party was held. The closest home was more than a mile away from where she was found at the time. 
Authorities stated Carrie had been stabbed multiple times, likely at the same location she was found. Carrie was four months pregnant at the time. 25 years later, the murder of Carrie Palmer Adams remains unsolved. If you have any information, please contact the Talladega County Sheriff's Office at 256-362-2748. Philip Shelton. 26-year-old Philip was reported missing by his father on July 18, 1991, after he had not been seen or heard of in a few days. Witnesses say Philip was last seen in the Mountain Home area. Shortly after he went missing, Philip's car was located on an abandoned fire road off Alabama 33. Authorities had searched the area where his car was found twice, but did not find anything of interest. In June of 2003, a skull was discovered in a heavily wooded area about a half mile from the location Philip's car was found in 1991. Lawrence County Sheriff's Office, along with dogs from the Hemsey Search Dog Unit from Huntsville, searched the area and found several other human bones near the skull. An old tennis shoe was also found approximately 100 feet from where the bones were found. The remains were confirmed to be Phillips. The sheriff's office suspected foul play and continued to treat the investigation into his death as a homicide. But 32 years later, they still have made no arrests. In 2003, a reward of up to $20,000 for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the person or persons responsible for Phillips' death was announced. If you or anyone you know have any information on Philip's death or saw anything related to Philip in mid-July of 1991, please contact the Lawrence County Sheriff's Office at 205-302-6464. Brenda K. Green. Fifteen years old at the time of her disappearance, Brenda has been missing from Brookwood in Tuscaloosa County, Alabama since July of 1988. She was dropped off at a friend's house across from Hosmer's Grocery in rural Brookwood on July 2, 1998. The friend was not at home, so she stayed at the house to wait. Her mother received a telephone call from Brenda later that day to say that she wouldn't be home until later, but she has never seen or heard from Brenda again. At first it was thought that she may have been a runaway. This seems to happen quite a bit in these cases, and she had done so before but police eventually came to think that there was foul play involved. If you have any information that may help this case, call Tuscaloosa Metro Homicide at 205-464-8691. Daniel Barter. Four-year-old Daniel Barter and his family were enjoying a summer camping trip on his uncle's property at Perdido Bay on July 18th in 1959 when Daniel vanished. The little boy was believed to be barefoot, still in the clothes he slept in the night before. He was drinking an e-high soda and playing nearby his parents, who were preparing to go fishing. His mother turned to find Danny and didn't see him. So he began to search along with the rest of the family and even eventually went to a nearby home to call police. Police believed Danny was being stalked before his disappearance. About a month prior, Maxine tried to confront a man sitting in a car in front of their home concealing his face with a newspaper, but he drove away before she reached him. Neighbors also reported that about a month before he vanished, an unidentified man had been seen peeping into the boy's bedroom. And a third incident happened the day before at the store near the campground. Maxine had parked the car with the kids staying while she ran into the store. A car pulled next to theirs, eyeing the kids, 
and when Maxine came out, suddenly drove away. No one has been able to describe the person or persons in these incidents. You can hear our discussion of the case in Episode 3, but the searches were many, several age progression pictures have been done, and there was even a tip in 2008 prompting the case to be reopened. But to date, no one has ever been arrested. It's been 64 years. That's a long time. 64. Since Danny Barter went missing. If you have any information in the oldest unsolved missing child case in Alabama, please contact the Baldwin County Sheriff's Office at 251-937-0202. As always, we will have the contact information for the agencies investigating the cases that we share today in the episode details. If you know of a missing or murdered case taking place in June or July that we missed, please send us a message so we can be sure they are added to our cold case list. We'll see you next week when we bring you two cases from Jackson County. Richard Michael Harden, a suspicious death case, which was deemed an accidental death by drowning in October of 2012, and Stacy Bell Sullivan, whose death was classified as undetermined in April of 2016. Please think of all of these lost souls, their families wanting answers and resolution, and for those of the missing, hoping that there may be a miracle that brings their loved ones home. Keep them in your hearts, share their stories, And if you know something, say something. Since Alabama Cold Case Advocacy's creation, we have dedicated innumerable hours to researching and networking in an effort to provide the largest platform we can to the cases we share. We shoulder all associated expenses with Alabama Cold Case Advocacy out of our own pocket, including the subscription fees for researching and production of the Unforgotten podcast to provide a cost-free avenue for the victims' families of those cases. We hope you will join in our efforts to raise awareness of Alabama's missing and murdered and support these families who have been forced to carry the immeasurable loss of their loved ones and the fight for answers. If you appreciate our mission and you are inspired to make a donation, your extra support will enable the ACCA to continue our research, share the cold cases, and help those families know that they are also unforgotten. Be sure to join our Unforgotten Patreon channel today to gain exclusive benefits, including early access to ad-free episodes and bonus content. By subscribing, you'll also be supporting the efforts of ACCA in assisting families in raising awareness for Alabama cold cases. Unforgotten is an Alabama cold case advocacy podcast recorded in conjunction with Riverside FM, hosted and distributed by Spotify for podcasters, available on your favorite podcast platform. Intro music for the show was created by Principles of Uncertainty, who also mixed and mastered this episode. Content and production is by Sellers and Stormy. Artwork by Sellers. Credits for music, sound clips, special mentions, and any source referenced in our podcast can be found in each episode's description. We hope you will join us on all the major social media sites and continue to raise awareness of our Alabama cold cases. Until next time, thank you for listening, and remember, justice may be delayed, but the victims and their families remain unforgotten.